Passcast, the podcast from the Portable Antiquities Scheme. Hello and welcome back to what we hope will be a real cracker of an episode of Passcast, the podcast from the Portable Antiquities Scheme. We have got an absolute treat in store for you um, with a really brilliant guest. Of course, all our guests are amazing, Lucy, you know, but um, we are excited, very excited indeed, actually, to be talking to Dr. Mike Bishop, the absolute authority on all things Roman military. Um, we've both known Mike for, well, longer than I care to remember, I suppose. Um, and, but his knowledge is, is, of course, second to none. Um, and whether it's Mark Hassel's on Hadrian's Wall or bits of rusty cavalry equipment that pop up on the database, he's your man. And as you may have guessed already, we're moving on forwards through Shakespeare's stages of life. And to quote another bit of the Bard, um, all's fair in love and war. And now that we've done the first one last week, it's time for the second. So here are the little bits from the, from the speech from As You Like It. Then a soldier, full of strange oaths, bearded like the Pard, jealous in honour, sudden and quick in quarrel, seeking the bubble reputation, even in the cannon's mouth. Well, I guess we better translate a little bit of that because um, pard is probably short for leopard or panther. And it might be that he's talking about whiskers, you know, and then the beard, the whiskers. Um, I guess it's difficult to, to shave when you're on campaign sometimes. And um, it plays into the idea of rough soldiers, of course, as well. The idea about um, jealous in honour is such a clear reference to a, a plague in uh, uh, Shakespearean society, this hot-tempered duelling with rapiers for the wealthy or poniards for the less well-off. And you can see this on the database, actually. We have all sorts of fancy sword belt hangers and, well, sword belt hangers are ten a penny, really, and bits and pieces from this period, bits of daggers and short, uh, small, rather, sharp knives, too. And you can see it in crime statistics from the 17th century, too. 90% um, in the source that I read of homicides in, from London in um, the later 17th century were male-on-male crimes with people being stabbed like Christopher Marlowe or taking part in duels and stuffing it that way or street brawls that end nastily with somebody getting a knife somewhere sensitive and that's it for them. And that's why there are so many fights in his plays, probably. It's something really familiar to the audience watching. But maybe when you, you give something a, a military context, it, it takes all that hot, hot-tempered bravado and channels it into a cause, maybe, which everyone can convince themselves is a good thing, that God is on their side, um, you know, uh, providential, I guess, or however they want to just justify it. So God for England, Harry and St George, another Shakespeare play series, of course. And I really like that reference to cannons too. Um, cannons developed from Chinese models in the 12th century. And there's a recipe for gunpowder um, in the Opus Magis of the English scientist Roger Bacon that's published, well, published, written down in a monastery in 1267. <laughs> and then they appear at, at Cressy, the Battle of Cressy in France, as bombards and had a really big impact on the outcome. There's a lovely children's book by Henry Treese about that, if um, anyone's good young listeners um, by about 1350 they're fairly commonplace and they go on getting more sophisticated so by Shakespeare's day these kind of roaring terrifying noisy things would have been well known and well imagined literally I've never made that connection before bombard and bomb of course yeah I never thought about that before but of course that's where it comes <laughs> from yeah makes perfect sense now 
Anyway, um, it, it's interesting, really. Uh, this episode has taken, uh, has us just as keen as last week, I guess, but the subject matter has the potential to be just as grim and grisly as the first episode. Oh, here we go again. Uh, if not more so, uh, we seem to have fallen under a bit of, uh, under the spell, I guess, of the warrior's beauty. And there's a little shout out there to Paul Traherne. And uh, we're not the only ones. Um, Paul Traherne's paper. Um, on the idea of the aesthetics of warfare being really important in Bronze Age society is one of the most cited papers in, um, in archaeology of recent years. It's just so influential. We'll pop it in the show notes. Mm. Um, and whether you're looking at designs for medieval horse comparisons, you know, the cloth floaty things that the horses wear, that turns out, I've learned recently, did actually provide quite good protection and weren't just for show. Really? Or kind of flashy military uniforms worn by 20th century dictators and dignitaries. A lot of those principles hold true and um, well beyond the Bronze Age. How do those how do those bits of blankets protect the horse? Well, apparently they stop arrows in the horse equipment training we, we did, I was told. And because they're they're really thick and deflect arrows and other projectiles. But well, yeah. okay. Well, well, you know. I'm I'm not sure I'd want to do an experimental archaeology with um, my friend's pony that the kids. Here, are. I'll hold this a minute and let me just yeah. <laughs> no, no, perhaps. <laughs> Hang not. on a minute. We're gonna shoot some arrows up. And, yeah. No. Um that kind of uh, expression of masculinity, almost hyper-masculinity, I suppose, um, through uh, projecting control of violence, even though that violence itself is often really uncontrolled and horrible when it happens. Um, if you've been down to York and seen the skeletal remains from some of those uh, those poor folks slaughtered at Towton, the bloodiest battle, well, so-called bloodiest battle on English soil, you can see how, well, how horrific it really would have been. And I think it's so interesting how nationally, I think we seem to have kind of forgotten about Towton and medieval battles, mm. battles, battles, what am I talking about? Medieval battles. Um, I really enjoyed listening to a great episode of In Our Time, the podcast from the BBC. And we're available, Melvin Bragg, if you, if you yes. want to call us. Yeah. Um, and it was about the Barons Wars and that shift in focus from capturing people for ransom to just cold, hard killing of um, everybody, aristocrats and included. It's just really chilling. And um, you know, obviously, neither of those things are good, but it's just a transformation in how people were thinking about warfare and the purpose of it. But I wonder if those medieval battles, um, I wonder if they're just too much. They're too, they're, they're too distant. They t- seem kind of too far away. And it's easier to think about 20th century conflicts that are not only closer to us, but they, I think people can cast them as kind of having clearer morality to them. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I went actually. I saw because you, you, you referenced or somewhere. I don't know if you put it on on a, on the for, on our forum or something about that Barons War once. I I listened to that, and of course it was all about Simon de Montfort. And then I went down this hole, this in our time rabbit hole of listening to about the Cathars and and uh, the Albigensian Crusade and and all that. And you're right, it it marks a real shift in that in that medieval period. And it's something I knew very little about, really. And it was, you know, really interesting. But uh, you're right, it, it doesn't get the, the attention that, yeah, that obviously, you know, when you tune into the History Channel on, on Sky or, 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 or your chosen provider, and, you know, it's filled with um, Nazis and their mega machines and the Second World War and, and the Psalm. And, uh, well, of course, when it's not, you know, about ancient aliens, I suppose, but, you know. Um, but they could be making amazing programmes about um, the development <laughs> of different forms of medieval armour buckles with the PAS, you know, and there's another shout out to any producers you know we could do buckles 
for you. Loads of buckles. Um, but of course, this this kind of, I guess, toxic uh, masculinity uh, being expressed through organised violence and the performance of super uh, of a super violent elite manhood uh, has really has a, a huge, a really long history, of course, um, uh, from the figure of Achilles in the Iliad, Gilgamesh, walloping monsters, all over the place really and of course the the Arthurian legends of the, the perfect chivalrous knight Beowulf Aeneas the literary sources are stuffed full really of this it, it seems to have fascinated us for for centuries these these kind of very violent and warfare tales and of course um, the database is mm. equally stuffed mm. full of um, all sorts of material culture associated with We've already name-checked um, the Paul Trahan paper, which we'll pop into the episode details, and we're going to zero in on um, Bronze Age weaponry in a minute. So we've got a, a really stellar Roman expert for the second part, so we're going to stay well clear of the temptations of ballistas and legionaries for now. It's probably a good idea to stay well clear of ballistas anyway, generally, I would have thought. <laughs> They hurt. They hurt. Yeah. Uh, anyway, um, our first object is, you know, literally hot off the presses, uh, recorded just this Tuesday, or at least published just this Tuesday, uh, in Hampshire, and it's an absolutely fantastic uh, spearhead from the Middle Bronze Age. Um, and the the number, if you want to go and look it up, is Hamp H A M P dash A two six E fifty eight glamorous title and um, here's the artifact description it's a complete cast copper alloy socketed spearhead of middle bronze age date uh, probably a product of the late Areton, acton park taunton or wilburton metalworking phases so i, I know I, I read those out like i know what they mean but i've no idea because i'm rubbish with uh, with bronze age stuff i just ask our resident experts but that's probably around sort of uh, 1500 to 1100 bc um, or Needham's uh, 1996 periods, four to five, if you're really interested. Uh, the spear's about uh, 101 millimetres in length, pointed leaf shape in sort of in, in form, 20 millimetres across, um, and comprises half the sort of extant length of the spearhead. It has a prominent rounded midrib, as all good spearheads should, uh, which runs seamlessly from the socket to the blade tip, and the socket, of course, is conical, flanking pairs, um, of small rounded side loops. Um, I'm looking at them now, lovely side loops. Um, and one third of the way up the length of the spearhead is the open socket, and one of the loops is incomplete. Although that loop is incomplete, the spearhead as a whole is really beautiful. It is lovely. And it's so, so complete and it's quite unusual as well. So um, I often, well, relatively often, I see axe heads or palisades coming in from the Middle Bronze Age. And I did once have a socketed gouge for woodworking, which was really exciting. But um, I've never recorded a spearhead. The only spearheads I've seen have been um, those 19th century horrible colonial um, souvenirs that have been brought back from southern Africa or bits of railing. Those are yeah. the only spearheads I've had. But this one with that leaf shaped blade and the raised rib at the center, they're so distinctive. And that little loop is something we see on other types of, um, of weapons for the period. And I guess even with the pal staves that we do see, you could argue that it's a tool, but um, this is really for killing things, isn't it? This is for killing animals or killing people. Oh, do you not get many, you don't, you don't get many spearheads. Oh, a ten a penny up here in Durham. Get loads. Well, you know, we get a few. Oh, that's interesting. There yeah, we go. Well, Look, research in action. So you yeah. get more spearheads than you do pal staves, do you? Um, yeah, probably. Well, I, I don't know. You get, I don't know about more. Yeah, probably, actually. Probably a few more because they, they tend to be, we, we get, 
well, not that regularly, but every sort of probably every two years or so, uh, someone will find um, a Bronze Age hoard up on the Upper Pennines. Um, so up sort of past Barnard Castle and um, very much in the news at the moment, of course. Uh, but mm-hmm. yeah, there's lots of well, there's traditionally lots of Bronze Age hoards that have been found up up that way. And and in the next kind of valley up as well in, in Teesdale, we had a um, well, that's Teesdale. Sorry. In the next valley up. Well, Weirdale ish. Um, we, we had a, another hoard two years ago-ish now. And, and these hordes tend to be kind of, you, you, they will be uh, socketed, they all tend to be late Bronze Age-ish. Um, and you do get socketed um, axes in them, quite a lot of socketed axes, but they always have spearheads and often swords as well. But it's a whole thing in the Northern Pennines that these right up on the top on the uplands, you get these hordes turning up and, and like really high up as well, you know, like really the one that we, from near Eggleston, which I think has gone live on the database not long ago. Um, that one, um, that one was really high up. I mean, literally, the, the when we, we went out, the detectorist called us out and we went out and helped them. It was excavated properly, more or less. And but the, the, the it was in it was wasn't really in a feature at all. It was just in in the kind of the rough pasture, scrubby <laughs> topsoil that was probably in places it was less than ten centimeters thick before you were onto bedrock and in where the the hoard was it was a little bit deeper it was maybe i don't know 20 to 25 centimeters thick but it was just down onto the bedrock and just above us on the hillside the bedrock sort of you know cropping out you know it was they're really high up anyway i'm waffling on again aren't i no, so it's really interesting because <laughs> i would say probably four or five times a year i get single pal staves coming yeah. no we get we, we do get hordes and, um, really hordes are really rare down here mm-hmm. apart from the big showstoppers like the dawlish hoard but um yeah, really, and and that hasn't got a, has it got a spearhead in? I can't remember. It's got a bit of a sword in. It's got some axe heads, but no spear. So really interesting. Yeah, yeah, they are really interesting. We're not mentioning. I can I can hear uh, our colleagues in Kent saying, "Oh, Bronze Age hordes," but we, you know, it's exciting when we get them because, like I say, they're just every couple of years or so. You know, we'll get a nice one. Well, often with things. Well, this one had that one I was talking about in Eggleston had a little bit of gold in it as well, tiny little bit of gold foil and some nice um, amber beads and things as well. So it was a nice little hoard. And it had, sorry, I'm waffling again, but it was really interesting because it had wood preserved in it as well. The sockets of um, these weird um, fittings that we're not really sure what the purpose is, um, but they had um, wooden fittings and the string that kind of wrapped them into the um, into the socket as well, preserved with them. It was incredible. No idea why it was wow. preserved. That's incredible. Was just, yeah, I know, but it wasn't waterlogged or anything. It was really high up. Um, so, you know, you'd expect, obviously, in waterlogged oh. conditions, it, things preserved, but this wasn't. It was just really well-draining, kind of sandy clay soil right up on the top of the Pennines, but weird. Anyway. Oh, um, amazing that you were able to excavate it as well. Really important. Yeah. 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 It was really, it was really well done. It was really they they got in touch with us as soon as the detectors got in touch as soon as they kind of came across it, covered it up and um, we went back and um and you know and sort of got all the as much information as we could really from it, I guess. Um, and the landowner was like over the moon as well. She was really excited about it and couldn't, you know, it was it was a lovely experience. Oh. And it was a beautiful day as well yes. in early summer and you know. Or late summer, sorry. Beautiful day in late summer. Anyway. Um, <laughs> early summer, late summer. Anyway. It's, um, it's all just one long, wonderful summer. And- it is, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I tell you, it, it rained so much in the Upper Pennines. I, it, it, it really was a lovely day. But um, the, the National Museum of Ireland as well has a really great page all about the the, uh, the type of society that would produce the spearheads, like this one we were talking about about 10 minutes ago, um, which is Middle Bronze Age, <laughs> as I said. Um, and we'll put that into the um, episode notes as well, um, because they suggest that the increase in spearheads, halberds and other weapons 
um, might be because society was getting more violent during the Middle Bronze Age. But um, yeah, you hear this a lot about, you know, those peace loving hippies in the Neolithic and, you know, and then all of a sudden something happens in the Middle Bronze Age and we're, everybody turns into bloodthirsty kind of barbarians but we'll, we'll come back to that sort of Traherne argument which is that probably violence was always there but now it's become fashion oh it's so frustrating that idea that there's all this kind of peace and love in the early bronze age and the neolithic because there are some really grim horrible massacre sites from the neolithic like the talheim death pit in germany and um, google at your own risk because it's a great it's, name um, isn't it that the talheim death pit talheim death pit <laughs> um, but what I I just think it's more likely that the there's more as it rather than there being an increase in violence, what's happening is that the objects that are being used to wage war and inflict violence become more beautiful and prestigious. And um, there's a really brilliant experimental archaeology paper that we found research in this episode, um, which is on spearheads, and it just shows how lethal Bronze Age spearheads could be. Yeah, Kate Anderson looked at different ways these spears could be used. As they always, um, well, I guess people always thought they'd be used primarily for just chucking at your enemies, like in the, all the films. But actually, she found that they were sort of devastating and effective multi-purpose weapons that you, you wouldn't have wanted just to throw away. They're very good for thrusting and slashing as well. And we've talked before about depositing this kind of object in a wet place and making them for that purpose. But there's no denying that you can kill someone with them very effectively. Although effectively, um, I don't yeah. think we'll be doing experimental archaeology on that. No. No. Um, and they are beautiful. There's hours of work gone into them, including that kind of alchemy that would have been bronze working at the time. And uh, looking at where this was found, it's somewhere I know quite well. I used to, used to walk my dog up there when I lived in Southampton. And it's interesting. There's a river nearby and some big famous sites from the Iron Age later, like thousands of years later. So I don't know why I'm drawing this connection. But they're really famous for, for kind of violence and fragmentary human remains like Danebury, where you've got really, I, we talked about the Talheim death pit, but mm. the Danebury pits are really strange little assemblages of mixed up people and animals all cut up in bits. You get that a lot though, don't you, in the, um, in, in the Bronze Age? when I, I've dug up pits where you'll have, um, you know, it's, it's primarily a human cremation, but then there'll be weird bits of pig bone or sheep bone that have been cremated in there as well. So, yeah, you do get kind of a real mix of odd, oddments in there. But um, definitely the warrior might be beautiful, or but he or she, because let's not rule that out, tons of evidence for female burials with weapons in lots of different contexts and places, um, from famous women to Boudicca or misidentified often burials from Italy to Scandinavia. Um, we did look for objects associated with Joan of Arc on the database to talk about a famous woman fighter in the medieval period, but came up um, maybe not surprisingly, unsurprisingly maybe, short, just a couple of seal matrices with St. Catherine that also mentioned Joan as St. Catherine was one of her voices. Yeah, I don't know why, but I was expecting there to be something. I guess to the people of England at the time, she was such a baddie, this horrible, terrible witch and heretic, um, this unnatural woman that maybe people wouldn't have had. Um, you, you're not going to have a Joan of Arc figurine, I guess, if you, you despise her so much. I don't know why. I, I, I was just really surprised when I went looking for her on the database and didn't find anything. But I think that's kind of um, that's a really nice example of kind of your modern take on things really impacting mm. how you think about the past and then the past just gives you a massive kick in the behind and says hello things are different here yeah. <laughs> yeah. we we'll have to have another, have another look there must yeah. be something it can't just be these weird yeah these seal matrices that are nothing to do with her but anyway mm. um 
now for the highlight i think of today's episode Definitely away highlights. from experimental archaeology of bronze age spearheads our amazing guest he's survived walking the hadrian's wall coast to coast path with me for company um, which is something every, anyone who does that deserves a medal and he also nurtured a young fresh and um bright-eyed <laughs> bushy-tailed field archaeologist then way back in the dark ages of 2003 dr mike bishop hello mike hello to you Hello, Mike. Hi. Hello, Ben. Yeah, I definitely was. I was young and green, and it's a, it's a story worth telling, really. I was doing my first ever... I, I've been, not been digging that long as a field archaeologist, and I was doing my first ever solo watching brief on this... Well, I'd done the kind of the compound area, and we'd found the Bronze Age cremation, which is amazing, but then I was doing this pipeline, and this all this Roman stuff started to turn up, um, like a linear ladder settlement-y type stuff. It was waterlogged and very odd, but with its V-shaped ditches and bits and bobs and a body as well in a corn in a corn drying kiln. But when I told my boss at the time, they were like, don't worry, we'll get, we've got the perfect man to send down to you to help you out. And uh, and Mike arrived and um, and it was great, wasn't it, Mike? It really great indeed, experience. Yeah. It was a wonderful time. <laughs> No, it was I'm really not good. Sure if it's, I don't think it's been published yet. <laughs> no, no, it hasn't. We won't put that one in the episode notes because it isn't published. But uh, well, it will be. I'm sure, you know, at some point. But no, it was really, it was really great because, like, I was young and green then, and you know, and still learning, learning my craft, I suppose. And and when they said they were going to send somebody down, you kind of think, oh well, that's it, really. But it, it you know, it won't be it. But you, you were, you were lovely, Mike. You were, you were really good, and uh, you, you know, you. Um, treated me very professionally and I thought you know it, it was a real breath of fresh air from some of the other people that I worked with before that I guess so it was uh, yeah it was great experience, really. <laughs> <laughs> but we've got you've, you've agreed to to sort of uh, go through our list of questions haven't you you know you've, you've agreed to be quizzed indeed yes <laughs> our first question for you is um how did you come to be where you are now maybe not the king in the north but the king of the wall and the king person the that, you know, if you've got a Roman site, then you want to speed dial. Oh, it's a long story. It started before I even went to university when I became interested in the Roman army, particularly in Roman military equipment. Um, and I left school, didn't think about going to university, got a job at a library. Um, and I used the time to uh, look at all sorts of publications on military equipment. And I borrowed a thesis by somebody on the subject of run military equipment. And I thought, I could do better than this. I need a plan. So I found the only university course uh, in Britain that I could do, because I didn't have Latin or Greek as languages. And that was at Sheffield University with the ancient history department. Uh, I went there and then, uh, shock horror, I was introduced to the concept of archeologists. There were a lot of people there in the department that is sadly in the news at the moment, mm. not prehistory and archeology. span uh, most of my friends at university were in that department and I married somebody from that department and I acquired archaeology as an extra tool for the study of Roman military equipment. Um, <laughs> and then I did a doctorate in it. Uh, I happened to complete my doctorate at the point where there were no academic jobs going in the 1980s. Um, so I hunted around for something to do, and I found postdoctoral work with the University of Newcastle, writing up the Coalbridge excavation. Uh, that's how I got into the Hadrian's Wall side of things. Having done that, I then got into writing up the 
Halsted's uh, excavations, this is huge backlog of projects that needed to be written up, English Heritage for funding them. And then 1989, uh, along came the Enterprise Allowance and my colleague and friend John Dore decided to become a self-employed archaeologist and I followed his example. Having said, well, having done Corbridge and Housedids, I'm certainly not going to do Wall's End. Uh, only to find a few years later that I ended up contributing a small part to the Wall's End report. So uh, all the big three got me in the end. So I became a self-employed archaeologist. I did all sorts of little odds and ends um, before uh, going to excavate at Chesterley Street on the church chair barrack building there. Uh, and then my career in field archaeology took off from that. Uh, not having been trained as an archaeologist, it's all very bizarre. Uh, but then, as a field artist, I think the bulk of people I work with were people who ended up in the job accidentally rather than got trained for it. So uh, that was that, but it's not a job that you can keep doing forever, particularly if you want to raise a family. Um, yeah. And I had also always had an interest in publishing, uh, both from the point of view of writing and actually publishing things myself, uh, typesetting and all the things, editing that go with it. Um, so I sort of gradually slipped into doing archaeological uh, typesetting publications. Did quite a few of those for CBA and for Oxbow and what have you, English Heritage. Um, so I've always had several strings to my bow, and uh, it comes in very useful when one thing dries up to be able to turn to. Uh, to something else. So the answer is I ended up where I am completely by accident, no design whatsoever. Uh, and my entire life is is led hand to mouth, uh, taking on whatever comes along at the, uh, at the moment. But it's fun. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's, yeah, you really are the, the kind of an archaeological polymath, really. You, uh, you seem to be, uh, you know, have fingers in all sorts of pies. I always thought it was a uh, as long as I'm not a jack of all trades and master of none. No, 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 no. Quite the opposite, I'd say. No. <laughs> we've asked you, we've got you to look at our list of questions and you've picked out the, uh, the well, possibly the most dangerous one as well. So what is your most controversial archaeological opinion? I have many. But the <laughs> really? One that, I'm shocked. The, the, the one that will probably shock most people is I hate gold. Oof. And the first thing people okay. ever, every time they ask you when you excavate, have you found any gold? I've only ever, in all the excavations I've done, found in inverted commas because it was actually found by wet sieving. I didn't find it. I may have dug <laughs> a bit of dirt that it was in, but I didn't find it. A tiny little piece of gold wire that came out of a well in the civil settlement in Varesk. Um, because... It just does absolutely nothing for me. I'd much rather have a nice shiny brass piece of Roman military equipment than I would have anything made of gold. It's very, very vulgar stuff. Um, and my view of what is interesting and delightful and pleases me is at the very opposite end of the scale. Also from that well where the, the piece of gold wire came, um, we had a couple of old shoes and my favourite thing of all time, which was a Roman leaf, still green when we found it. It changed colour mm. very quickly. It was in the goo at the bottom of the well, which was, it preserved half of a Roman barrel in it because the well had been lined with barrels. First thing I discovered about 
was is that there was a second-hand trade in barrels in the Roman Empire. After you've shipped your beer or wine from Europe over to Britannia, um, what do you do with the barrels? The answer is you line wells with them. So somebody somewhere was making a fortune by selling old barrels. To but gold, gold, gold is my my hatred. Controversial archaeological opinion. I can get behind that. What an amazing idea to just think of this person with their kind of barrel wholesale business somewhere in Britannia. <laughs> well, the Romans were masters at recycling. Every, yeah. Everything they did, upcycling, downcycling, recycling, all of those, they explored all of them because they were very conscious of the need to be careful with their resources. Mm. I mean, this is, this is why we have so much Roman military equipment surviving is because it's caught up in the recycling process. And that's how it ends up in the ground. It's broken. It needs to be repaired or melted down or what have you. And that's why we find it. Oh, that's fascinating. I never thought of it like that. But yeah, I guess so. Yeah, Because it's been reused and fixed and melted down and reused so many times, I guess it, yeah, that's why we, we tend to find it. It's, uh, I never thought about it like that. It, yeah. it, all, it all reflects on um, how a society reacts to uh, warfare. But if you take an example of early Rome, regal Rome, say in the 7th, 8th, 7th, 6th centuries, um, there's hardly any military equipment surviving. What little survives is in burials. Mm. Uh, but you don't get the sort of volumes you get later when you have big armies that are very hungry for resources. Uh, and you think the Roman army has to have large amounts of brass Mm. Um, and when their main zinc source is in the Rhineland, it's a bit of a pain to have to keep shipping zinc over to Britain. So it's much easier to just keep recycling your existing brass to make new items. Oh, that's really interesting. The next question you've chosen is, um, what is your archaeological safe space? But I feel like we might know the answer to that already. Um, it's definitely not going to be gold jewellery, is it? Um, funny you should say that. No. <laughs> I, I have a couple of safe spaces. It depends. It depends what I'm, what sort of mood I'm in. If it, if I'm sort of feeling uh, cerebral and academic, I have my long-term project, which is uh, a book on everything to do with the Roman army in Britain, all the reference mm. sources, everything you need to know, uh, which I've been doing for. Ten years or so. Probably take me another ten years to finish it. There's a tease and a half. A when is that going to be out? We need it now. I've even got a T-shirt with it on. <laughs> another ten years. T-shirt with the cover of the book on it. You see, this is one of my little tricks. If I want to get motivate myself to finish a project, I make a T-shirt of the the book, and then people ask me about it, and that keeps me thinking. I must finish it. I must finish it. We're, we're asking now on behalf of the whole PAS, we're, we're asking now for, for that book, Mike. I think it'd be very useful. Please. It's, it's going to tell you every archaeolo every Roman military unit that served in Britain, all the references to them, all the sites connected with them, lots and lots of plans, oh. lots of oh, photographs, all sorts of things. And because I'm interested in the book as a concept uh, and have been tinkering with uh, integrating dead tree books and digital online books, it will be uh, a multimedia book in the sense that it will have an online manifestation and a dead tree manifestation to please everybody. Yeah. So the ones who 
uh, like to obsess about sniffing books, they'll be pleased. <laughs> and the ones who want to be able to look things up quickly will be able to do so. It's really magic, don't you think, like about a physical book, and especially one with loads of maps and plans in, and you can just really get your nerd. I just, oh, I love that. I love books. And um, I used to work with a very nice colleague who, when my second, first book second book came out the first thing he did when I gave him a copy was sniff it and say oh it smells good but it must be good and I was like thank you very much <laughs> the thing about the thing about digital versus paper books is that it's a false dichotomy and both of them have strengths yeah so for this project what I'm going to do is use the strengths of both of them so there'll be things in the paper book that aren't online that you can't do online and there'll be things online that aren't in the paper book to play to the strengths of the two different formats yeah that's a good idea oh there's <laughs> your publishing background coming in there that's really clever yeah well you have to see if it ever happens <laughs> <laughs> so that was you that was, that's your cerebral intellectual kind of safe space yeah the, my my purely uh, i want to chill and not have to think about anything is that i do typesetting i typeset archaeological books because yeah. it's a wonderful soothing mechanical process that is uh, artistically satisfying uh, all sorts of the things that you don't actually have to think about doing yeah. if it looks good on the page then that's that's fine by me so between the two of those that's how I that's my downtime basically yes, that's just that's where you run to when things get too hectic uh -huh. indeed um, so th the next question you selected um, from was your, your funniest moment, your funniest archaeological moment, I guess, or funniest moment? What, funniest, funniest archaeological moment. Funniest story. Tell us a story. Yeah. I've had a lot, but I suspect it's one that we share oh, I knew this when was I was digging with you on North Road yeah. at Doncaster. York yeah. Road, Doncaster, wasn't it? Yeah, it was yeah. the two... Um, park and ride schemes that Doncaster Council were doing. It was um, the lesser of the two as well in terms of what you found, as I recall. <laughs> Indeed. Um, Much the, the lesser, yeah. The, the first one was, um, was a Romano-British rural site, um, and it was right next to the road leading into Adipa Street. And my, my funniest moment has to be when my portaloo <laughs> was stolen. No. So much stolen as relocated, and it was dragged across the field, leaving a little trail of Elsan blue and paper into Ew. some woodland, laid on its side, and then a mattress put in it. And somebody obviously spent the night in there. Mm, and we oh. had to track this thing down and find it. It was such an utterly bizarre moment. One of those little bits of uh, administrative detail that you don't factor into digging a site no. is wrestling with what happened to your portaloo. And we thought when we were when we got a replacement for it that we'd be smart and we tried to stick it in the lock-up cabin, if you remember. Which is always pleasant. I don't which, which, which ended up with us having it at a funny angle, a bit like a TARDIS that had relocated badly yeah. inside. It was just, the whole thing was completely <laughs> and utterly absurd it was, but very uh, very funny particularly uh, afterwards not necessarily at the time <laughs> i bet you're not allowed to do that anymore you know put the portaloo in the lockup there'll be I'm, I'm sure there'll be uh 
health, health and, safety, and safety or uh, you know the rams wouldn't allow that anymore but, um, well i mean these these days you get um units that have them yeah. built in i mean yeah. we had one when i dug the other car park down at the south end at rossington where there was stuff um, yeah which had uh, you know the accommodation room a drying room uh, a loo and a generator at the end and while i was there uh, i had that one attacked as well somebody cut in through the side of the hut with a an angle grinder work their way through the building to get at the diesel that was in the generator tank so instead of going through the door at the end which was too too heavy too reinforced they cut in through the soft side of the thing and got at it that way right next to a main road and nobody saw nothing <laughs> these, are, these are all the joys of uh, of commercial field archaeology your cabin being broken into your portaloo turned over but it's, I never uh, had a portal loose set fire to, so I was quite well, happy about you that. You did well there, then. Yeah, Puddle yeah. of plastic the next morning. <laughs> no, I never had that. But they, they blow over all the time. Ask any field archaeologist who spent a bit of time out working outdoors and about having to, you know, write a blown over uh, portal Yeah, it's one of the joys of uh, digging. <laughs> you just have to use them a lot to give them some, some base, some foundation. Yeah. <laughs> Leave the heaviest digger in there when the wind blows. That's well, well, apart from blown over or burnt out portaloos, um, the uh, next question you collected was, what do you think the biggest threat is that archaeology and heritage is facing at the moment? Well, this is kind of uh, uh, very uh, topical, yeah, big, I guess, isn't it? Big, dark, yeah. sad question. From portaloos to extremely serious. Well, the, the answer is the big paradox, because the, the biggest threat to heritage and archaeology is, of course, government, any government, not necessarily any particular one, uh, but they're also at the same time the uh, saviours of archaeology in that wise use of policy helps prevent problems. So you have to factor in the fact that um, the people in charge of looking after archaeology and heritage at a statutory level can also be the ones who, uh, whether by intention or not, present the biggest threat to it, whether at a planning level um, or at an ideological level, shall we say, to put it politely. That's my answer to that one. It's the government. They're the biggest threat, but they're also the biggest saviors. They have the power to, to both save it and destroy it. And I'll give you an example of that, which was not Stonehenge, but the... Um, Hadrian's Wall Quarry extension, when uh, the owners of the quarry next to Mile Castle 42 put in an application to extend the quarry along the back of Hadrian's Wall for several miles to the east, sticking to the letter of the ancient monuments legislation at the time, which allowed them to quarry to a certain distance of the monument, remembering that the legislation at the time had no provision to protect the setting of a scheduled monument mm. or to protect indirectly any effects on the monument. And this is in the context of what had happened to one of the turrets, turret 45B, a Walltown quarry, where they quarried all the way around the turret, left it standing on a little pinnacle, and ultimately, unsurprisingly, the pinnacle collapsed and the turret disappeared. So it was argued that... Um, this was going to be a problem for Hadrian's Wall between wall miles 41 and 42 if they quarried all the way along behind it, because they, what they do, they go up to it and say 12 feet of the actual wall itself. Um, and then inevitably the wall was going to collapse. 
now uh, into it. And opposed to this was the government's observation that jobs were badly needed. Remember, this was in the uh, 1930s, so it was when uh, the depression was rife, mm. jobs were short, and they wanted quarrymen's jobs for their constituents. So um, there was a lot of controversy over how how that should be dealt with. And in, in the end, um, the, the quarry owner was bought off and uh, a compromise was reached so that the the, um, the quarry you still see if you go to Mulcastle 42 was developed and still run for several years, but they didn't expand it and thereby uh, endanger the wall. So governments have that power in, in terms of their legislation and their attitudes to both threaten and preserve heritage and archaeology. I think it's always important to remember both aspects of that, particularly in the context of things like the Stonehenge Tunnel, to yeah. name but one thing. And I guess the, the whole kind of... Uh... The, the, the kind of the, the well the birth of commercial archaeology with ppg 16 obviously came from you know a very good thing you might say for you know the amount of data and sites and 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 things that have been if not saved then preserved by record along the way including our excavations in doncaster you know but at the same time it, yeah it's uh, the way things are at the moment with funding cuts to university courses and uh the well, it seems to be the general attitude towards, you know, heritage as well from the government at the moment doesn't seem to be particularly kind. I don't know, <laughs> maybe. It, yeah, it, it's worrying. It's very worrying, I think, you know, at the moment. Oh, you just have to remember, Ben, this too shall pass. This too shall pass. Well, indeed, yeah. Actually, I, was, I, did, I did you see... I just saw this morning on on, on Twitter that the um, that the, the latest kind of profiling of the profession has just been partly released. Um, oh, it's just I think. dropped. Yeah, it's just dropped today, and there uh, and that's um, um, where well, you can find it uh, at, at Open Access Arc is their Twitter account, and you can go to you know all the other bits and pieces and their website from from there. But it's interesting to see that after a big fall in jobs, sort of you know following the kind of recession in. Uh, after 2008 and up until about 2011 that um, jobs in archaeology jobs in the sector have steadily rose until obviously 2020 since then so it is a growing sector you know in terms of the way that it's been you know plotted by uh, this organization whether that what effect the kind of obviously the pandemic and everything will have on that I don't know um I mean, anecdotally, it seems that there's been a lot of people. I guess it depends because they nursed, want to do but... loads of big infrastructure projects yeah. they, to try and boost um, boost employment. And if yeah. you're going to be doing that, then you know, we talked about Stonehenge, but also yeah. HS2. Yeah. Um, you're going to need archaeology, and there's yeah. a big shortage, I think, of you know, experienced field archaeologists. People, I've seen it on Badger. People describing it as a kind of lost generation of people who graduated into that 2008 recession and left the sector, and now there's a kind of gap there um so yeah it's, it's interesting to think it about is. all of those little connections yeah yeah maybe there'll be a last pandemic generation as well but then we're still here <laughs> <laughs> you're still there aren't you mike mike just about just about ben. just about sorry while we waffle on yeah hanging um, on yeah but um, let's get back to a roman yeah let's get back to let's the run away from our government yeah other other governments forms yeah. of government yeah, I've been watching actually on a, on a tangent. I've been watching I've been halfway through that uh, that Domina series that's on at the moment about uh, 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 Livia, 
Uh-huh. Be, uh, you know, it's uh, yeah, it's quite it's quite entertaining. Have you seen that one, either of you? No. Uh, no, I don't have the appropriate channel. I don't think. No, no. Well, neither neither do I. I think. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let's move on from that. Though. But it's no, it's very good. Very, it's quite. You know, I, I do enjoy. Uh, we really enjoyed Barbarians, which was in German. Um, I haven't seen that one yet. The Tutorberg Forest, and that was that was um, a lot of nudity and a lot of woad, but we enjoyed it. <laughs> Some of the armour was very accurate. I mean, <laughs> oh, you were paying attention then, Mike. That's good. To, that's good. I liked how they had these Roman baddies speaking actual Latin and speaking it like Italians. I really enjoyed that. I thought that was they were well, well represented. Nice to hear conversational Latin. It's it's on my it's on my watch list to, sort of in my head to watch, but um, obviously because it's German and I my German is almost as bad as my English. Um, I I. Uh, I, I, you know, you have to concentrate and watch it and read the subtitles. So I haven't quite got around to it yet. But I said to, so as you you, you know, my um, my boss is David Mason, who you know is another another Romanist and another wall enthusiast. Although he's, I think it's it's not matched by his enthusiasm for the Roman navy. But um, I was talking to him about it just a couple of weeks ago, and I said, oh, have you seen that that German series, Barbarians? And he said, oh no, I've not heard of that. And I said, yeah, it's all about the 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 uh, Teutoburg Forest, you know, and all that. And he said, oh. Oh no, I'm not one to watch that. It's too sad. <laughs> <laughs> Less said about that, the better. He said, you know, we don't we don't want that, you know. So but there we are. But um anyway, uh perhaps we better get back to some Roman objects uh in instead. Um and so we asked you, Mike, to cast your eye over the database and um uh, and uh, rather than choose something that would be nice and non-controversial, you know, like a nice bit of you know, armor or a nice um you know, uh, 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 Fallerer or something, you've gone for possibly, well, one of the most controversial objects on, on the database, um, but also one of the most interesting and one of the most fabulous as well, um, and, and very, very famous. Uh, and I'll start with the, uh, with, the, with the identifier for it, because it's a Lancome, that's L-A-N-C-U-M-E-4-8-D-7-3, but of course, that doesn't that that little name doesn't really do justice to this very famous Crosby Garrett helmet, which I'm sure everybody will instantly recognise. Um, the record's in incredibly long, uh, <laughs> so I won't read all of it. Uh, you don't have to switch off now. Um, but we have got the introduction, haven't we, Lucy? We have. Um, here we go. An extremely fine, near complete copper alloy two-piece Roman cavalry sports helmet dating from the late 1st to mid-3rd century AD. The helmet consists of a face mask, a headpiece with a griffin figurine crest attachment. Oh, they've missed out an and there, tut tut. Um, It was found in 33 fragments with 34 smaller fragments found in association. Many of the fragments were found to join and the restored helmet is now circa 90% complete. And Mike, I can't possibly imagine why you'd want to talk about this. No, nor me. Well, um, <laughs> I have a sort of love-hate relationship with the thing. Yeah. Um, ha- having um, watched all the uh, huge amounts of publicity when the thing was found and then put up for auction, um, I subsequently got, subsequently got asked if I would be involved in the, the initial publication, the booklet for it, that was to go with its first exhibition uh, in Carlisle. Uh, so... Um, David Breeze and I got together a collection of small reports and so forth. I wrote a description of the thing, uh, which which involved looking at it very carefully and thinking about it. Um, 
and it, it for all its uh, if you leave aside all the controversy from the point of view of a, a Roman military artifact its particular points of interest are it is the first of these sports helmets that's been found that uh, represents um, a Trojan rather than a Greek or an Amazon because by the second third century these cavalry sports games that were undertaken started to involve an element of role playing if you look at some of the earlier helmets like the Ribchester helmet um, they're pretty amorphous they're, there's no sort of distinguishing uh, aspects to them but by the uh, the third century certainly uh, they were obviously starting to get into this this whole thing and starting to do a little bit of role playing so you had Amazons, Greeks, and we now know, thanks to this helmet, Trojans, because uh, it sort of plugs in a series of Roman stereotypes to let you know that it's a Trojan, including the, uh, the little pointy hat at the top, uh, which, which always says to a, to a Roman, ah, somebody from the East. Um, <laughs> so they knew that. Um, and it also, um, how can I put this politely? It's one of the the more restrained and more aesthetically pleasing pieces of Roman military equipment from the third century AD, which was a period when things tended to be a little bit bulbous and crude, shall we say, not, not quite as refined as equipment was in the first century AD. Uh, but this helmet was actually quite delicate and quite restrained. Um, it's also interesting in that, um, it always throws up the controversy of did they, were these things worn in battle or were they just worn for uh, the Hippica Gymnasia, this, this formalized training system the Roman cavalry used. We have an account of it surviving by uh, Flavius Arianus, who was a Roman governor, military commander, wrote quite a lot about the Roman army and he wrote a description of these cavalry exercises. And he specifically says in this account that these face mask helmets were only used in these uh, cavalry sports, as we tend to call them, uh, not used in battle. Uh, and so a whole different range of equipment was used for this. Quite unusually, because people often talk about Roman parade armour, but Romans didn't actually have parade armour. Their idea of parade armour was your normal equipment, but nice and shiny and taken out of its covers that usually are there to protect it. Whereas for the for cavalry games, there was a specific set of equipment that was used including these face mask helmets. And one of the interesting things about it is that, uh, as anybody with uh, any horsey experience will tell you, he says, looking towards Lucy, um, <laughs> it takes a certain amount of skill to be able to ride a horse and considerably more skill to be able to ride a horse whilst wearing uh, a helmet that gives you a limited field of vision and throwing weapons at people and having people throw weapons at you. So it is essentially ratcheting up the level of skill necessary to do this. So that once you are out there on the field wearing a normal battle helmet facing an enemy, um, you're working with, uh, you've got skills that are so refined you can cope with it, cope with dealing with the horse, because uh, you've got to have a, a shield in your left hand, the reins in your left hand, a weapon in your right hand, and still manage the horse as well. So all these skills have to be concentrated and this helmet is the equivalent of what the infantry have to do, which is fight with double weight weapons. So legion is trained with a double weight pilum and a double weight gladius 
and a double weight sword, uh, shield. The idea being when you went into battle, it all felt much lighter and um, you could cope well. And this helmet does the same sort of thing for the cavalry. It makes the cavalry work harder in these sports uh, to refine their skills. They weren't worn by everyone, we know that. They were only given to the uh, the best of the riders. Um, but they're, they're a, it's a way of improving the skills of the individual. And unlike all the other examples, which are over-decorated to some people's tastes, um, this one is quite refined and quite delicate. Um, so it, it ticks all sorts of boxes with me as something that is interesting, tells me a lot about what's going on, uh, stuff that we didn't necessarily glean from other helmets. Um, and I quite like the fact that it was hugely controversial at the time um, and um, underlined some of the shortcomings with the original uh, revision of the treasure legislation. Yeah, well, perhaps we'll come on to that in, in a second. I just wanted to say that there's um, uh, the, uh, Giro, uh, when, uh, who wrote a lot about um, Roman fingerings, I'm sure you've come across. Um, um, but uh, they use a, a great word uh, for, for those third century kind of more vulgary, voyant, they call them, don't they, for the uh, those very big rings that come about in the kind of third, fourth century and very, you know, over the top and uh, nouveau riche almost, I suppose. Um, but yeah, voyant. And I was thinking when you said that about the... Uh, about the helmet, it's it kind of a little bit more restrained. It's not too voyant, perhaps we can say. But uh, it, and it's interesting yeah. as well. Um, what you say? So when you read about it, and you, and it said, like you say, you know, it's described as a cavalry sports helmet, and so you think of it uh, a sport as as we might think in 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 a more modern way as a kind of recreational kind of thing. But like you say, it isn't. It's it's about training and still about training and and showing off as well and you know and being able to show your prowess but it is all about training and preparing and preparation for you know what may come in terms of you know what those cavalry soldiers might be facing so it's fascinating yeah. every aspect of the the hippica gymnasia achieved two things it achieved a very thorough training in various aspects of what was required of you as a cavalryman but also it provided a spectacle yeah. and we know that they um, would set up a dais and uh, prominent people would come along and watch this thing because it was spectacular to see. They deliberately dressed up in very colourful equipment and you've got these evolutions of horses circling around on the parade ground in front of you. Uh, so spectacular to watch, but at the same time achieving the goal of, uh, of training the men. And, and we have Hadrian's comments on something similar happening to that from Lambysis in North Africa, where he comments on it, and he he picks out small details about you know well they weren't quite as good as the others, and uh, <laughs> you could do this, you could do that. So obviously there was a sort of a uh, like a critique of how a, a, a striker was performing during yeah. a, a football match or something. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's enough interest in how this is done to be able to pick out details like that. Have you ever seen the Kegis? game of Kotboru. Have you seen, oh, if you could, there's loads of videos on YouTube, but it's the game where there's two teams and they fight over a dead goat and yes, you have to I have throw the that, dead yes. goat into a goal. It's just extraordinary. The riding is amazing. Just the level of skill and the strength as well to be hauling this bloody thing around. It's, it's seriously heavy. Um, it just, you know, if you think about that as a spectacle and then you add in kind of all of this equipment and the helmets and the clothes and everything else, it must have been amazing to see. There's a wonderful, all of the different bits of the uh, 
the Hippica gymnasia have, have terms to them. And one of my favourites is the Hodoi Porikon, which is the voyage where you have to run up to your horse and mount it fully armed. Mm -hmm. So you have to vault into the saddle. And don't forget that Roman saddles have these four little pommels sticking up. So mm -hmm. your targeting has to be pretty precise in order not to suffer some sort of serious wrong, injury. Really painful. <laughs> and no stirrups either, did they? No stirrups. No, no stirrups. So you've literally got to just go for it. <laughs> no leg up, yeah. I don't know. Sometimes riding without stirrups can feel really, I don't know, really liberating. But um, only if you've got very good balance and a very good relationship with your horse or are really confident. This was the advantage of the Roman saddle is that it gave you a very firm seat. Mm. You could lean forwards and backs and to either side, providing you got it attached securely with the girth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if your girth's not done up properly, you're going to be in so much trouble. You mentioned uh, the kind of the more controversial elements of it, or alluded to them a little bit in terms of the Treasure Act. But of course, we know that there are mooted uh, uh, changes to the Treasure Act now that, that sometimes I've loosely referred to as the Crosby Garrett clause. You know? <laughs> but um, where... <laughs> the Crosby Garrett amendment. The Crosby Garrett amendment. Yeah, it should be. It should be so named, shouldn't it? So the objects that have really uh, specific. Well, they're, they're talking about setting a specific value, aren't they? Uh, you know, whatever monetary value that might be. So that if the, if you if objects are worth more than that, then they would automatically trigger uh, the treasure criteria or would fall under the treasure criteria, really. But of course, this one didn't, and and it, it that didn't happen in this case, did it, Mike? And it was sold uh, at auction to a private buyer. That's true. But I always like to remember that the helmet has two specific monetary values. There's the one it was sold at auction for, and then there's the scrap value at the present price of brass, which is still about £3.85, if I remember <laughs> rightly. It has been displayed publicly, though, hasn't it, at Tully House? It has several times now, yes. Shout out to Tully House. We said last week about going back to your local heritage sites and museums. If you're in Carlisle, go, go and book tickets, go and see go Tully, Tully House, because it's a yeah. really, really good when it was on display in the uh, British Museum um, next to the Ribchester helmet, so you could compare the two. Um, before it went back to the owner at a mystery location, um, we had uh, obtained permission to do a 3D scan of it. Um, originally, it was going to be a 3D laser scan, but unfortunately, the person who did that was away on the day, so we had to do it with a photogrammetric. Uh, survey and we had something like two hours between it coming off display at the British Museum and then going into the back of a security truck to be taken to its uh, final destination so I was standing there watching them scanning this thing with the conservator who travels with it sort of poised at the bottom with his hands around it as they rotated it on a very slow turntable in case it uh, fell. Well, that did give me the chance to, uh, or give us the chance to weigh it. We got him to put it onto the scales. Because the detail people always miss is weights yeah. of military yeah. equipment. Yeah. I'm always trying to get people to do this, weigh stuff, it's important. Um, and that's how I'm able to tell you what the, the scrap brass price is for it, because we <laughs> weighed it. And we also weighed the Ribchester helmet at the same time, and they're both about the same weight. Oh, that's interesting. I'm just looking at the record on the, on oh, the that's database. No, I'm looking at the record as well. I'm thinking, does yeah. the record say? No, no it, it just says it the just height. Says height. Oh, 407 we'll to... millimetres. Yeah. Well, we might have to uh, yeah, get we'll that have from to you. Yeah, we'll have to ask you what the weight is so we can add it to the record. 
<laughs> we put all the all the details in the um, in the, the book, book that we produced, and then the final publication that was edited by David Breeze and produced by the Cumberland and Westmoreland. Uh, yeah, I've got that. Society. I, I've got that. I bought that because oh, I went to see it. The only the only time I've ever seen it was when it was on display at Tully House most recently. Uh -huh. which I think it was a couple of years ago when that they did was during all... the Hadrian's Cavalry exhibition. Exactly that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, and I, I, I actually I think I was going to say I bought a copy, but I didn't. I was bought a copy for Father's Day, I think, <laughs> while we were there. <laughs> there you go um but yes i shall be I, it must be in the office i don't think i've got it at home i think i took it to the office so it's another another one i don't have a digital copy for you see and this is the problem but um no. i shall look up the weight and uh, we'll, we'll add that to the record but because uh, of course when it was found and the other thing about it as well as well as the kind of the, the, the treasure aspects and one of the other controversial things is that when it was found it was it wasn't uh it wasn't as it looks now shall we say <laughs> This, this is interesting because it caused a huge amount of controversy because the thing was uh, put back together in a helmet form by the conservator. And the, the, everybody said, well, this is terrible. But the fact is there's a huge, long tradition of Roman helmets that are found in a bashed up condition that have subsequently been restored. And the Romish Germanish Central Museum in Mainz uh, are specialists in doing this and have been doing it for, for years. And in fact, um, the only occasion where Roman helmets have been found and not restored to something like helmet shape was um, two helmets, again a cavalry sports helmet and a cavalry battle helmet that were found at Tel Um Haran in Syria, uh, down in the southern end of Syria, just north of the Jordanian border. There was a, uh, a a massive tomb of somebody who we think was probably a Roman cavalry officer, a local Roman cavalry officer, and it was stuck mm. on top of a tell. And mm. this, the Syrian authorities back in the 1950s managed to intercept this as it was being raided by tomb robbers. And a fantastic set mm. of equipment came out, horse harness, weapons, these two beautiful helmets, which were crushed. They depicted scenes of combat on the outside of them, including Romans fighting Parthians. Um, and the helmets were conserved, but not reconstructed. Instead, what they did was they made plaster models of what mm. the helmets would look like had they been reconstructed. Well, that's one of the few times that conservators have resi resisted the temptation to um, place a helmet back into a helmet-shaped form. The Hamilton helmet's another one that you can see where all the pieces that were found have been reconstructed to to make a to make a helmet. So. That particular aspect of the criticism of what was done to the uh, Crosby Garrett helmet mm. has to be viewed in context of how Roman helmets have always been treated by by museums and collectors. I mean, that's just what you do. You don't want the thing looking bashed up. Um, you put it back into shape. Uh, there is a picture on the record of it um, in its kind of fragmentary state. So you can look at it, listeners, if you want to go and see um, the kind of before and the after. But Mike, I have a really stupid potentially question. Um, we know that different units within the Roman army had kind of different um, associations depending on where they were from. But to what extent is the equipment quite universal? I was just thinking about that burial from Syria and how useful it is to have that kit, that sort of set of kit. But is that something we might expect um, up here at our end of the empire? Like, as, uh, would the equipment be the same? Or thinking about different conditions, um, just, you know, 
riding your horse as a cavalry officer in the desert is going to be a really different experience to being up on the walls. So do you need different kit? Like, is there, is there a lot of regional variation? It's a really stupid question. I can't believe no, I'm asking. <laughs> it's a very good question. Um, and it's the same answer as the observation people always come up with, that all Roman forts look the same. Uh, and the answer to that is all Roman forts look very, very similar, but they're all different. Uh, and the same is true of military equipment. There's, there's a broad general theme to all things, um, but there are individual uh, characteristics that develop by the region and arguably by the unit as well. We know when the Roman army invaded Britain in 43, um, units that had come from upper Germany, uh, particularly from the fort, fortress at Mainz, brought with them a style of belt plate that you only find in southern England in the sites associated with the initial campaigns by Vespasian in the area against the Durotrigates and so forth. Um, and so you can see that there are particular tastes within particular units, particular uh, trends, that then get complicated by the fact that Roman armies move around the empire legions and their associated auxiliaries get posted off to go and fight wars in Dacia or something or fight against the Parthians. Um, so influences when you have units who are not familiar with each other, they might see things in the other guys got that influences how they design and build stuff in the future. There's a whole series of cross fertilizing ideas that go on. So Roman military equipment is similar, but there are individual characteristics that you can you can pick up. Yeah, it seems like there's potential for an individual to kind of manipulate their kit to suit themselves as well. So like, I guess the thing that's important is that you're able to fight well in it. But I don't know, I have this kind of picture in my head from Asterix cartoons of you just get, here's your breastplate, here's your helmet, off you go. But obviously that's not, it's not as simple as that, is it? Yeah, uniformity to, to a Roman was a very different concept to what it is to modern armies where everybody has to look exactly the same. To the Roman, you had to have a helmet, you had to have armor, you had to have a shield, you had to have a sword. Um, shields, to some extent, had to be the same, same shape and size if you're going to start making uh, testudines, uh, forming a testudo by locking shields together. You can't have shields that aren't the same shape to do it. But all the other things, um, there's no requirement for your helmet. Why, why should one person not have a brass one, one have an iron one, one of an earlier form, one of a later one? We know that multiple owners inscriptions are found on helmets so some of them could last perhaps as part of a century in use um, and there's, a, there's no um, ostensible reason why if you get a group of Roman soldiers together they couldn't actually look quite different this is one of the things I used to say to the Owen Street Guard many years ago when they used to turn out and look really really uniform uh, everybody looked the same and say, well, no, that's not what the Romans would look like because we know from the archaeological record that all sorts of different things are going on. And now if you see reenactors uh, performing, a lot of them will wear, be wearing lots of different bits of mm. kit. And that's what we know the Roman army looked like. It was, it was all similar, but not the same. <laughs> they were happy with that. It's only us who impose our particular aesthetic on it that think that uh, armies should all look the same. Same is true also of marching in step, but we won't go into that. No, no, I knew that was going to come up. <laughs> well, yeah, but I was going to, because obviously when you, uh, you know, the soldiers kind of get up, you you could choose your own personal gods or or your own, you know, your, 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 
decorate your armor to your own taste with a particular phalera or, or whatever it might be to you know suit yourself i suppose yeah you, you could when when you left the army you sold your stuff back to the army or you could sell it to a messmate or something uh, and new recruits could could buy up this this stuff it's all at a nominal price we, we even know the price that uh, a soldier paid for uh, his one-eighth share of a tent because we have a document surviving where his mother turns up <laughs> to claim back the money that, that he had had to pay out for this. Um, but it's, like that it's, Roman it's like, tiger. Man. I want my one-eighth tent. Well, he's, I mean, these, these things were important. It's like if you bought a horse from the Roman cavalry, it cost 125 denarii. It didn't matter if it was a good horse or a bad horse, a small horse or a big horse. Um, that it's was a flat the fixed price. Go really? Government operated on fixed prices. <laughs> So, so you could end up with any old nag, or you could get a really lovely... Well, there's nothing to stop you going out and buying your own horse. No, that, that's the point. Likewise with equipment. Yeah. We know that people could go and buy fancier stuff if they wanted to uh, from local craftsmen. Because you had craftsmen in the army, when they retired, what are they going to do? They're going to go and set up in the civil settlement, making quality items for quality soldiers. So this is how the, you, you kind of move through the different styles of armour then through the period is really, it's an organic kind of change rather than being imposed from above, you think? Yeah, very much so. I mean, there is no mechanism in the Roman world for guys sitting in a central office to dictate what helmets are going to look like. It's, it's not like debates over what the, uh, the British infantry helmet should look like or something yeah, like that. Yeah. I mean... Uh, all they care about is that the soldier has a helmet uh, and that he doesn't throw his equipment away when he retreats. And that's written into legal digests. That's really interesting, though, because the equipment works. But then for horses, it seems mad to me that that's not more regulated because, um, you know, a couple of bad horses in your unit, you're in deep trouble, aren't you? If they won't wheel or do whatever. So I'm amazed that that wasn't more more organised. But um, yeah, I go, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, maybe your commanding officer would just tell you, look, look, Marcus, that horse isn't up to scratch. You're going to have to get rid of it or you're out. Yeah, but then do you have to buy another one? Another 25 <laughs> denarii for, for some stupid thing that we do, you ask it to with a mouth like iron? You don't. The Roman system was operated in such a way because of patronage that if, mm. if a commander didn't like the way really? things were doing, he could go and buy stuff for people. Um, and we know Julius Caesar bought decorated equipment for his troops. Uh this, this happens all the time. And, and, and Gaia, you could get stuff sent home, sent to you from home by people if you wanted. There's a story of the soldier Tiberianus in, uh, came from Egypt, wrote to his father and asked for a, a mattock, a delabra. It was sent to him. Then he wrote again and said, the Optio nicked it. Can you send me another <laughs> one, please? There's all sorts of ways you can acquire equipment. As I say, all that matters is that you have it. It doesn't yeah. matter where you get it from, what it looks like. Just coming back to the helmet, I just, I was just wondering, do we know where it was made? Are there any clues as to, you know, was it made here natively in Britain or was it imported? Do we, do we have any clues about that from the style of it or anything? No clues at all. Um, right. Well, that's a good, the, good answer. Okay. The, these sort on. of, these sort of helmets turn up all over the place. There, there was a tendency in the 20th century for military equipment specialists to favour particular factory sites. Dagger mm. scabbards were one example where people would say, oh, well, dagger scabbards are being made in a certain place because they have to found a lot there. <laughs> then as time goes on, more and more turn up, you realise, oh, well, actually, 
Yeah. Uh, they, they could come from anywhere. They could belong anywhere. We, we, we don't know. Without knowing more about the, the background of the individual who owns this, where he travelled, where he worked. Mm. I mean, he may be a, a Briton who'd spent his entire life in the Roman fort at Bowes or something, just down the road. <laughs> uh, he retired and then the thing got buried. Yeah. But equally, he could have come from anywhere else in the Roman Empire. But there's no way of knowing. These, these things have, a, as I said, a similarity yeah. throughout the empire. Similarity, but not the same. That sounds like the PAS database. Every record's similar, but they're never quite yeah, the never same. Quite the same. So you can never run a good search because <laughs> you never know what you'll get. <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> <laughs> Data cleaning is oh, a skill. Thank you so much, Mike. It's just been such a privilege to talk to you. And um, I think we could keep talking all afternoon about Roman military equipment. Um, but yeah, maybe we'd better do it off air. But thank you so much. It's just been, yeah, I've, I've loved it. Good, I've enjoyed it too. Thank you to both of you. Yeah, thank you very much, Mike. It's really been a pleasure. You've been listening to Passcast, the podcast from the Portable Antiquity Scheme. To find out more about what we do, to explore our database of finds, or to get contact details for your local finds liaison officer, please go to www.finds.org.uk. Thank you.